All right, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to do something, Lord willing, tonight that may shock you. I'm going to cover a whole chapter in one session. We will, because we did last night, and we have to to keep you together with the Tuesday group. So, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, hopefully you understand as you see all that's going on here that this scroll is a big deal. And actually, like you saw in the note, uh, the email that was sent out ahead of time, if you don't understand what this scroll is, I, I didn't, you notice I didn't say represents. If you don't know what this scroll is, you won't fully understand what's going to happen in the rest of Revelation. When John realized that no one was able to open this scroll, he wept loudly. And I'm just going to tell you straight up, so would you if there really wasn't anyone able to open it when you see what this scroll is. And I'm just going to just tell you straight up ahead of time what the scroll is, and then I'm going to lay it out for you from Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation tonight, all about this scroll. You see, it says that when Jesus, the Lamb who had been slain, comes and takes the scroll from the hand of His Father, every kind of creature, human, animal, angelic, righteous, or unrighteous, breaks into praise of the Father and the Lamb. Now, we know who the Lamb is, right? We don't have to take the time to turn there, do we? John chapter 1, verses 29 following, John the Baptist was there and he said, when he pointed to Jesus, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He even goes on and says, I didn't know who he was except the one who sent me to baptize told me, the one whom you see the Spirit come down upon, that's him. And so John the Baptist said, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And hopefully you do understand in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following, the Bible says that in the name of Jesus, what? Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess to the glory of God the Father that He is Lord. All right, now look closely at what happens when He grabs the scroll. Everyone, look at verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, 
to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This all happens when the Lamb, Jesus, does what? He grabs this scroll. So what is this scroll? Well, let me just tell you, it's the title deed to the earth. And Jesus is the only one worthy to enable to open the seals and to meet the terms necessary to redeem the earth since it has been given over to Satan for a time. And we're going to spend some time tonight laying this all out and explaining it to you so that you'll understand. But the scroll itself is the title deed to the earth. And Jesus is now getting the earth back at this moment, beginning the process, if you will, of redeeming the earth. Let's just kind of go back to the beginning. Go to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, look at verses 1 and 2. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth is whose? It's the Lord's. You actually know in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, it says, in the beginning who? God made the heavens and the earth. You want to have some fun, by the way? Go take your Bible and a highlighter and just highlight every time God puts his name in chapter 1 of Genesis. If you look at chapter 1 of Genesis into just the first couple of verses of chapter 2 in the creation account, you're going to find that God put his name 32 times. He's, he, he's not wanting there to be any question as to who did this. In the beginning, God, and God saw that it was good. And then God said this, and it was that way. And then God, he, he puts his name there 32 times. We'll go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. It's, I'm in one of these modern churches where the flipping of the pages sounds like a finger swiping across the screen. Years ago, uh, when I would preach, I used to love to hear the pages turn. And I was at this one big church, and I asked them to turn to a certain passage, and I expected to hear all the pages turn. And I started to get up and say, wait a minute. And then I looked up and everybody had their iPads and what all that kind of stuff. And you just can't hear the pages turn on that one. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Look what it says. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him, The Bible says the earth was not only created by God and that it belongs to God, it was created by God, Jesus as well, and it was made for him as well. The earth is the Lord's. But God gave dominion to man when he created Adam and Eve in there in the garden. Go to Genesis chapter 1, you'll see it in verses 26 and 27. Even though it's the Lord's, he gave rule over this creation to mankind. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 and 28, look at what God says here. And the scripture says, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion, rule, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the every living thing that moves on the earth. 
So here again, it says that God made man and he gave them dominion. It's the Lord's, but he gave control over the earth to man. By the way, you want evidence of that? Did God name the animals? Man did. All these names, man, why? Because God said, hey, I've given you rule. I've given you dominion over the earth. You're the rulers of the earth. You get to name them. By the way, just a quick aside. All this tree hugging and animals are more important than people stuff that we see in the world today is actually going against what God has designed. We are his prized creation. And God has put us over them, and we are to rule and reign over them. They're not to have dominion over us. Sad that we see people busting over, chasing after a bear that killed a dog and, and went after its owner on the news. I don't know if you saw that in the last couple of days. They're all upset that they're going to go after this bear. Yet they don't worry about all these babies being born. I mean, and then put to death before they're, they're born. So let me just say, God said to Adam and Eve, I'm going to give you dominion and rule over the earth and over all the animals and everything. You're in charge. Well, we got a problem. When man sinned by disobeying God and obeying the voice of Satan and eating from the tree that God had said not to eat from, three things happened and then one bad thing. The three things that happened there in the garden, the first one is this, and I want you to write them down because we're going to come back to them later tonight. And it's very important that you put them down. The first thing that happened was Adam and Eve spiritually died. The moment they ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, the moment they disobeyed God, the moment they listened to Satan instead of God, and they obeyed him instead of God, they died spiritually. Now, it's interesting. If you've ever studied it for years, I've, especially when I was a young single man, I used to read in the Bible about how Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. But then all of a sudden, after the tree, they then realized that they were naked. Did, did anybody else have a problem with that? Because, I mean, as a young boy, I'm thinking, how could you be next to a naked lady and not know she was naked? <laughs> but as I've studied the scriptures more, I think Adam and Eve had a glory. Even though they were naked, I don't think their nakedness was that noticeable for the fact that I believe that the Bible says, remember they were created in the image of God? And what, what encircles God all the time? His glory. I believe Adam and Eve had a glory just like God, a glow just like God that was such that the nakedness wasn't that noticeable. But the moment that they sinned, they lost that glory. And their nakedness now was visible. You want further evidence of it? Again, we're not going to take our time to go chase this rabbit too much. But what happened to Moses when he just spent a few days in the presence of God? Just being in the presence of God in his flesh, the glory of God just started to reflect off of him and stick on him in such a way that people were afraid of him when he came down from the mountain. Folks, I believe Adam and Eve had a glory. I think the Bible also talks about the fact that when we get our new bodies, they're going to have a glory again like we used to have. I also think the Bible actually leans a little bit, and again, we're not going to take the time to do that study, into the fact that some of our reward is going to be tied to how much glory our bodies have. Didn't Paul in chapter 15 talking about what kind of bodies are we going to have when we get our new bodies? Talk about how one star differs in glory from another. There may be a chance that part of the reason why some will receive more reward than others in, in heaven because of their faithfulness on the earth. Some of you might be able to fly. Some might not. Some of your bodies may have more glory than another's. That might be part of how this reward's all going to play out. But Adam and Eve, the moment that they ate from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from, they spiritually died. 
And they needed to be separated from God now because they couldn't be in his presence because of his holiness. They even sensed it themselves, and they hid from him. Second thing happened. Second thing happened. Their bodies were cursed and began to die. If you go back to Genesis 3, God says, now your body's going to go back to the dust of the earth. So the first thing that happened is Adam and Eve spiritually died. Secondly, their bodies then began to die. And the third thing that happened was the earth was cursed. If you go back and look at Genesis 3, you'll see and say, God says, now cursed is the ground because of you. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. As I shared with a group last night, we live in a beautiful area, especially those of us who live over on the beach side. Every time we cross the causeways, I just thank God that I just get to live on that little island out there. I just, I just can't help but just say, Lord, thank you for letting me live where I live. People always, whenever I travel around, they say, aren't you worried about hurricanes? And I'm like, you can see them coming. You guys that are in Tornado Alley, you never know when it's going to come. And they give us warning when the hurricanes are coming. We're all good at packing up. We all know what's we got. We got it ready to go. Pack it up. Head across. Get a vacation. Come on back. Find out what's left. Rebuild. And it comes back nicer. It's, it's actually not a bad thing. You get to live with your friends in their house if they get electricity. You know, it's not as bad as everybody thinks it is. But we, as beautiful as the area is that we live in, it's under a curse. You want evidence? Just yesterday, a friend of mine just bought a nice boat, and he was showing some of us his boat. And we didn't go out on the river, but we were at the yacht club there in O'Galley, and we're out there just looking at his boat, and it's beautiful looking out on the river. But if you look closely, you'll notice, those of you that have been here for a while, the river's not as clear as it used to be, is it? And there's junk floating in it coming up onto the shore. And beautiful from a big picture, but as you look closely, you realize it's under a curse. It's under a curse. Now, we're going to deal with more of this later. The three things that happened in the garden. The fact that they spiritually died, the fact that their bodies began to die, and the earth was cursed. Keep that in your notes. We also need to talk about something big that happened. Remember, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He gave dominion to Adam and Eve and said to mankind, you are in charge. You get to rule over everything I've made. I'm giving it to you. By obeying Satan, though, instead of God... They gave their dominion of the, over the earth to Satan. You want proof? Go with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 8. This is the beginning of the section where Jesus has led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested and tempted by the devil. And Luke chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. How come Satan says to Jesus, I can give you all this? I can give you authority? It's mine to give? Because we lost it. Yet God had given us dominion, but we subleased it to Satan. And we lost our rule. Well, how's the Bible describe Satan now? He's the ruler of this world. Well, let me show you a couple of places. Go to John 14. 
We're in Luke. Go to John chapter 14 and look at verse 30. A few places of how the Bible and how Jesus himself even describes Satan. In John chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus says this. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Oh, he has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Who is he talking about when he said the ruler of this world? Satan. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Another place that he's described not only as the ruler of this world, but he's described as the God of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verses 3 and 4. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds, the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here again, we've seen that he's described as the ruler of this world and the God of this world. Now, I'm also going to take you to some scriptures tonight that I want to show you as well. Because if we're going to be faithful, one thing if I can stress to you when you do Bible study, when you kind of build your theology, again, please don't build your theology because I believe what Jim believes. I believe what Jim teaches. Don't go there. Because I'm not perfect. And as gifted as I think I may be, I have flaws and I'm not perfect. I don't fully understand all this, but what I teach you, I'm going to be sharing with you because I believe it's what God's word says and I've studied it and I know I'll be held accountable, but I'm not perfect. No theologian is. But what I want to communicate to you is this. If you're going to build your theology, you need to build it on listening to teaching, listening to the word and studying the whole of scripture. Many of the teachers today take verses and build an incredible doctrine, but it doesn't match up with the rest of the scripture. If I tonight just showed you those couple of verses that described him as the ruler of this world and the God of this world, I would be remiss because there are actually some other verses that deal with that same topic, and I have to show them to you. Oh, the good news is, when you let the reason why I'm showing them to you sink in, it'll actually get you kind of excited about what's to come as we open this scroll. Go with me to John chapter 12. Look at verse 31. I showed you John 14, verse 30, but look at John chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. What is Jesus referring to when he says now? Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. What's he talking about? The cross. He's talking about what he's about to do by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Look closely at what he says. He says, the ruler of this world is going to be cast out when I die on the cross. Well, we got a problem. Well, before I get to that problem, let me show you something else Jesus says after his death and resurrection. Go to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, look closely, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you see it? We've already seen that 
The earth was the Lord's. He gave dominion and authority to Adam and Eve. They lost it and gave it to Satan when they obeyed him. And for a while, he was described as the ruler of this world, the God of this world. Actually, Paul continued to talk him about, talked about him as the God of this world. Jesus even said, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. But he also said that when I go to the cross, the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. And after the cross, after his resurrection, he says, all authority has been given to me. Remember what Satan offered him in the, gar in the wilderness? I'll give you all the authority. It'll be yours if you'll just worship me. But now Jesus says, all authority is mine. Well, we got a problem then. If all authority is God's, now, how come Satan seems to still be having some fun? How come after Jesus says that all authority has been given to him, Paul wrote, the God of this world is blinding the eyes of the unbelievers. That's why, folks, you've got to build your doctrine, build your theology from the whole of Scripture. The Bible actually answers that question. It's in Hebrews chapter 2. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verses 5 through 17. In Hebrews chapter 2, and by the way, listen to this whole section because there's going to be a part that's going to answer the question, but the whole section is going to make something later on very, very understandable. So stick with us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere. I love that. By the way, for those of you that struggle pulling up a scripture reference, the Hebrew writer is quoting from Psalm 8. And he says, it's written somewhere. I love that. <laughs> it's written somewhere. Have you ever felt guilty? You're like, man, I know it's in there. And it says this, but I don't. Because we were taught, those of us who were raised in certain churches that had Bible drill. You remember Bible drill? And when you had to memorize the scripture, and you had the three by five cards, and you had it written down, and then you would stand up there as a little kid, and they'd ask you to step forward and quote the scripture, and you would, and they'd say, oh, you left off the word and. Go step back. Oh, I thought I had it. Because we've been taught you've got to get it perfect. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Hebrew writer, inspired of God, said, I'm going to quote a passage to you. Not quite sure where it is. <laughs> what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, meaning Jesus, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, we see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by grace of the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, before I go any further, let me just take that something here and just teach you something that you need to hear. Many of us have been raised in churches where we are taught that we can have dominion over Satan. You can just bind Satan. You just say in the name of Jesus, I bind you. Careful, careful, careful. The Bible even says that the angels, who are far more powerful than you and I, would not dispute with Satan over the body of Moses, but they said, the Lord rebuke you. And the Bible actually here shows us that even though all authority has been given to Jesus for his purposes and for his reason, he's not exercising that full authority yet, is he? Satan has been allowed to still do his stuff. He's on a leash. 
God controls what he can and can't do. You don't believe me? Go look at the book of Job. It's always been that way. The only reason that Job's like that is you won't let me do anything to him. Well, I'll tell you what. Here's what you can do. Here are the limits. God controls. Satan, Jesus even said to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, and I gave him permission. But he had to come begging to touch you. So, folks, just don't be walking around thinking that you can just bind Satan. Satan, we cast you out of this place because, oh, if Jesus hasn't exercised the full authority, what makes you think you got full authority over him? Oh, the Bible does say, though, that you submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll leave. Why? Because you're so big and powerful? No, because you backed up into the robe of your daddy. And he sees him and he backs away. Don't start claiming things that the Bible says Jesus doesn't have. Oh, he has it, but he doesn't exercise it. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Could Jesus have stopped the planes from flying into the towers? But he chose not to. Could Jesus have kept certain people from dying? But he chose not to. At the cross, Satan was cast out. He was defeated. But for God's reasons and his purposes, he has allowed Satan to still have some authority. Keep reading verse 10. For it was fitting that he, meaning Jesus, for whom and by whom all things ex exist. We saw that in Colossians 1. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all through all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery for surely it's not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people so at that time that Adam and Eve ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from and listening to Satan instead of listening to God. Oh, by the way, I've got a sermon series that I've been working on and I can't, I can't wait till God releases me to preach it. But I'm putting together a sermon series for my next series of messages that God's getting me ready for and he's going to know where they're supposed to go. But the whole sermon series is going to be entitled, I Know What God Said, But I Think. <laughs> and we're going to start in Genesis all the way through and how we deal with that today Adam and Eve knew what God had said. But boy, that tree sure looks good for food. And this snake says that actually it's going to be good for us. I know what God said, but I think. And folks, as I deal with people over the years, and I show them, deal with scripture and doctrine and theology and even end times things, you wouldn't believe how many people say, I know that's what the Bible says, but don't you think? I know what God's word says, but... I just kind of think this way. Folks, we got to all be careful. It's in every one of us. we got to either believe what God's word says or we get to be God. You don't want to go down that road. Adam and Eve ate from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from, and by doing so, they gave authority of the, over the earth to Satan. Oh, the law of God said that if someone lost their property, 
Someone who was a near relative could buy it back for them. Go with me to Leviticus 25. Leviticus chapter 25. Look at verses 23 through 25. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 25. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Why? Because the land is God's. The earth is the Lord's. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, God says, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So God has set up here in the Old Testament a law of redeeming of the land. If, as you remember, when the nation of Israel was brought into the promised land, God divided it amongst the tribes. Now, the Levites didn't get any inheritance of land because God was their provision. But all the other tribes got portions of the land. And it was to stay in that tribe's possession, in that family's possession. But if someone, because of whatever, they lost it, it could be bought back for them, but only by who? A near relative who could redeem it for them. Oh, you may not know this, but when someone lost the property, the terms that had to be met to redeem the land were written on a scroll and sealed with seals. You say, Jim, well, is that in some Jewish tradition book? No, it's in your Bible. Go to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. In a section of Scripture where God is promising through the prophet Jeremiah that uh, they're going to, even though they're being taken by judgment of God out of the land of Israel, they will be coming back. And they'll be able to buy and sell in that land again one day. Look at Jeremiah 32, uh, verses 6 through 15. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anatoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord. And he said to me, buy my field that is at Anatoth in the land of Benjamin. For the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anatoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. Then I took, look closely, the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and the conditions in the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahasiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase. And in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and the open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. You see it? The terms for redeeming the land were written down on a scroll, and there was a sealed copy and an unsealed copy. The unsealed copy was just something that could be out in the open where Jews could come by and see. If someone had lost their land, they could see it on like, like a community cork board or whatever. And they'd say, hey, 
<laughs> So-and-so lost their property. I'm a relative of them. I can meet these terms. And if they were able to meet the terms and they were the nearest relative, they then would go and tell the leaders, I'm able to redeem the property from my relative. I see the, the open uh, copy there. And they then were able to be the one who take the scroll and open the seals. So at this point in history, when Jesus takes the scroll, he's about to begin the process of redeeming the earth. Now, do you remember the three things that happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned? You wrote them down, hopefully. What was number one? They spiritually died. By the way, all three of those things that happened in the garden at the moment they sinned were dealt with at the time of Jesus' death and his resurrection. They were dealt with by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. But we don't get to experience the benefits them of them until the proper time that God has chosen. When do we get to experience the benefit of Jesus' death and his resurrection in the being brought back to a life spiritually? When you believe. Go with me real quick to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, Jesus is teaching and he says this. He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, look closely, has eternal life. Not will have eternal life has eternal life at that moment. He does not come into judgment, but has already passed from death to life. At the moment you trust Jesus as your Savior, the moment you respond in faith, God says, you're now spiritually alive. What does it say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? He says, uh, sorry, chapter 5, it says, if anyone, verse 17, is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. They say, Jim, that's, that's great and that's wonderful. And I, and, I, and I believe it. But I don't know about you, but my body hasn't changed. Well, there were three things that happened. The first thing that happened was they spiritually died. Their spirits were separated from God, but now their spirits have been made alive. When we trust Christ, we are redeemed at that moment. Oh, by the way, we're not going to take the time to turn there, but if you want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 25. At Deuteronomy chapter 25, you'll see the law for redeeming the bride. We know it as the law of leverage marriage. Or remember, the, maybe the Ruth and Boaz story will help you with that. Remember, the law said that if a man had a brother who had a wife and he died and they hadn't produced any children, the relative was to take his wife as his wife and to redeem her so that she wouldn't be out on her own. And the Ruth and Boaz story is a beautiful picture of what Christ has done. What happens, what does the Bible say we become when we trust Jesus as our Savior? We become the bride of Christ. So the bride is the first to be redeemed. Spiritually made alive is the first thing that happens because of what Jesus did on the cross. But as you would all agree, when you trusted Christ as your Savior, your cholesterol did not drop. You did not instantly lose 15 pounds. Your knees didn't all of a sudden feel better. Your body is still wasting away, isn't it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, Outwardly, we are wasting away. Inwardly, in our spirit, we're being renewed day by day. But outwardly, we're wasting away. 
Oh, but there was a law of redeeming the slave. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 that our bodies are slaves to sin. And you choose whom you're going to obey. And Paul in chapter 7 went on even further to say, who can save me from this body of death? He says, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. I find this law at work in my inner man. I want to do the will of God. But I find this other issue going on that my flesh is waging war against my spirit. And I got a problem. I can't wait until I get out of this body. When do our bodies get redeemed? At the rapture. At the rapture. See, they're going to see from Scripture there's an order. At the rapture is when we get our new bodies. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 through 18. Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who do who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Do you see it? This isn't when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth. This isn't when he comes down to the earth and sets up his kingdom. This is when he comes in what is a mystery. Paul said, let me tell you a mystery. First Corinthians 15, around verse 50 and 51. He said, let me tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, but we're all going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When that trumpet is blown, we're going to go take on our new bodies. You see, a lot of people didn't understand that when the Bible talked about the fact that Jesus was going to come back, they didn't understand that his coming had two parts. The mystery of the rapture where Jesus comes in the clouds. And we're alive at the time, we'll be caught up and go get it. As that's happened, we're getting our new bodies as we go meet with him. Those who have already gone to be with him, what did Paul say? Absent from the body is present with the Lord. He's wrestling in prison with whether or not he's going to live or die in Philippians 1. And he says, I want to go because that'd be better by far to live as Christ and to die as gain. But I think I'm supposed to stay in the body for a little longer to help you in your progress in the faith. He knew that when he left this body, he's going to go be with the Lord. But here, the Bible says that those who have gone to be with the Lord, they're going to come with Jesus when he comes at the rapture. Their bodies are going to come out of the ground. And then we're going to be caught up and we'll get our new bodies in that process. And we'll go be with him. We're going to go meet him there. What did Jesus say in John 14? In my father's house are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you till I can, you'll be with me where I am. The context is in the presence of God. Oh, yes, yes, Jesus is coming back to the earth. He is going to come on this earth and literally rule and reign for a thousand years. You're going to see that as we get further in our study. But there is a time that most people don't understand. And there are people that are out there trying to just rebuke it and say, well, the rapture wasn't even mentioned until 200 years ago. Well, it's been a mystery. You shouldn't be surprised that a lot of people over the years didn't see it in the scriptures because Paul said, let me tell you a secret. 
And many people missed it. Actually, we're living in a time post-1948 where all of a sudden we go, well, maybe God really did mean Israel when he said Israel about all those last days promises. But you have to understand, for the first 1,800 years plus of the church age, there was no Israel. So all these Bible scholars like Luther and others who were studying the scriptures would read these prophecies about the last days and the t things to come, and it would talk about Israel and Zion. And Well, didn't Paul say in Romans chapter 4 that not all those who are Israel are Israel? Until he started to build this doctrine of there's no really millennial kingdom. And they built that the church had replaced Israel. And many of you grew up in churches that didn't understand what the Bible said, taking it literally about what is to come. And everything was the church. I even was raised in a church that taught us that you, you become saved and then we go to heaven. They didn't even tell us about this thousand year reign of Christ on the earth because they didn't believe it was going to happen. They thought everything was just here and because the church was the center of everything. You've had preachers preach to you from Matthew 24, trying to read the church into Matthew 24. We're not there. You've had people preach to you from Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goats and how you come into my kingdom. You are my who on the sheep and you, you guys go to judgment. And you are going to be the goats. And they tried to read that into the church. It's not referring to the church. We're going to explain all that stuff in, in the weeks to come. Folks, what I want you to understand is in the garden, they spiritually died. And Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, has already taken care of that. And that is yours to experience right now. If you'll trust him as your savior, you can be made spiritually alive today. Oh, your body won't experience its redemption until the rapture. What was the third thing that happens? The earth was cursed. And we already saw in Leviticus 25, the terms for redemption of the land were written on a what? On a scroll and they were sealed. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. By the way, for those of you that want to go and double check Jim Johnson on all this stuff, you can also find the law of redeeming the slave in Leviticus 25 as well. Every seven years, the slave was to be set, set free, or every year of Jubilee, they were to be set free. God gave a law of redeeming the slave as well. But here in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, you're going to find Paul talking about the redeeming of the bodies and creation of the earth. And I want you to, as I, as I read this to you, listen closely at the order in which this is going to happen. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who have been redeemed spiritually, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, what? The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, now hope that is not is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Look at what Paul says. That creation was subjected to futility. Creation was cursed, just like our bodies were cursed. But creation's waiting for something to happen first. Because creation knows that once this happens, it's next. 
It wanting to experience, well, how did he put it here? Verse 21, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see it? So that means creation will be redeemed after our bodies are redeemed. Haven't we already seen it in our study? John is told, come up here and I'll show you what's going to take place after this. And when he gets there, as we've already studied, the church is already in the presence of God prior to the tribulation. And they're worshiping him on 24 thrones around the throne. The bride's been redeemed. The rapture has already occurred and we've gotten our new bodies. What's next? The earth. And that's why he saw this scroll. He wept because he didn't think there was anybody able to open the scroll. Oh, but there was. And why is Jesus able to open the scroll? Because he's God? No. Because he's God and man. Did you remember Hebrews chapter 2? He had to be made like us in every way so that he could be this person who was able to redeem the earth for us. And so as Jesus begins to open the scroll and to open the seals, you're going to notice that every time he opens a seal, something happens on the earth. Every time he opens another seal, something happens on the earth. And there are seven seals that are going to be opened. And the seventh seal actually turns into seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet turns into seven bowls. And you're going to see as we break this all down in order what's going to be happening during that seven-year tribulation period as Jesus meets the terms of redeeming the earth. But by the end of that time period, the earth we live on right now won't look anything like it looks now. It's going to go through a whole tumultuous turnover. But by the end of it, by the time that Jesus comes back and sets foot on this earth, a change will begin where healing will begin. The Bible says the kids will be able to play in a cobra hole. The lion's going to lay next to a lamb and it's not going to eat it. And there's going to be all sorts of this stuff that go on that people that live and only, only live to a hundred during that time are going to be considered accursed. Because people are going to live for a long time. It's going to be an amazing time of peace and righteousness. Oh, there'll still be sin. That's why Jesus will be judging and ruling with an iron rod and we'll be judging with him. Why will there still be sin? We've got our new bodies. We won't be tempted to sin. Why would this still be sin? Because there will be humans that live through the tribulation period. And at the end of the tribulation period, Jesus is going to separate the ones who get to enter the kingdom according to how they treated Israel. All those years that we were told that he was talking to the church when he says, you did it to the least of these brothers of mine. You've done it unto me. Folks, do you get into heaven because you gave someone a drink of water? Do you get into heaven because you gave a visit them in prison? Do you earn your salvation by your good works? No. And I'll show you later on in our study when we get to that point that when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, all he's doing is taking the humans that are left at the end of the tribulation. And Joel 3 shows us word for word that the same thing. And Joel 3 says he's going to gather all the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat and he's going to judge them according to how they treated, it says it literally, Israel. Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goats is just simply saying, you guys get to live in the kingdom. You guys don't. And it's all on how you treated Israel. Now, those humans still have a problem. Sin. But how, how are they going to have a problem with sin? Satan's going to be bound in the pit for a thousand years. How come they're still going to sin? 
What are they still walking around in? Human bodies that are still under the curse. They're going to make lots of babies, the Bible said. People are going to live for a long, long time. There's going to be lots of babies born during that time. And even though Jesus is ruling and reigning, and we're ruling and reigning, and even though there's righteousness and peace, and there's not going to be any more war, there's still going to be sin. There's still going to be rebellion, even without Satan. By the way, all of y'all have been taught by uh, that guy that used to say, uh, devil made me do it. Flip Wilson, remember Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. No, you read your Bibles and you realize devil didn't make you do it. It's already in you. James chapter 1, verses 13 and following. It, it's the desires launched from within you. You got it in you and I got it in me. The good news is we've been redeemed. We've been set free. We have the ability because of Christ in us to say no to the flesh and no to sin. And one day we'll get out of these bodies and we won't have to deal with it anymore. And that's going to be a wonderful thing. But now, do you all see why this scroll is such a big deal? Because in the opening of this scroll, Jesus, the only one who's able to redeem the earth, is going to be getting the earth back from Satan. Oh, all authority is his, but we don't see everything in subjection to him yet. But at that time we will, as he begins to meet the terms. I'm going to ask you a question as we begin to close. Since Jesus is the only one who can open the seals, is there any part that we have in this event that's going to come to pass? I mean, the Bible says John wept because there wasn't anyone able to open the scrolls and open its seals. Because Jesus is the only one. And Mark, you were there last night, so you have to be quiet. <laughs> Do we have any part in what's to come? The answer is right there in this passage in Revelation 5, if you've missed it. We do have a part, and you might have not seen it. In Revelation chapter 5, look at verse 8. And when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Look closely at that. Go with me to Revelation chapter 8 real quick, and let me kind of give you another example. Look at Revelation chapter 8, verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So we see from the scriptures that in this incense that is burning continually before God, what fuels it is our prayers. But you may not have realized that it's not just your prayers. It's the fact that you have been praying for this day to come that Jesus takes the scroll. Folks, go with me in your memories back to the first prayer you probably ever heard in a church. You see, Jesus taught us how to pray, did he not? He said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. He taught us in the model for prayer that we are to, oh, by the way, in that prayer, we're to pray for bread. How often? We're to pray daily for bread and to pray daily for protection from the evil one or deliverance if he chooses to let the evil one have his way. He's also taught us that we're to daily 
say, Lord Jesus, one day you said you're coming back. You describe yourself as the one who was and is and is to come. Lord Jesus, would you come? Folks, I'm going to challenge you. Between now and whenever it is that he grabs that scroll and begins to open the seals and the tribulation begins on the earth, I want you between now and then to daily beg God for that day to come because he taught us to pray. He also taught us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, did he not? Go with me to Psalm 122. Go to Psalm 122. Look at verses 1 through 9. David says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Let me ask you an honest question. When is there going to be peace in Jerusalem? There's only one time. It's when Jesus himself comes back. Oh, there'll be a temporary fake peace that the Antichrist signs. But he's going to prove that he didn't mean it after three and a half years. The only time pre, the real, real, can you say it, that there'll really be peace in Jerusalem is when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes and sets foot on the earth. We've been told to pray, your kingdom come on this earth. You have taught us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Go with me real quick to Micah chapter 5. A lot of you know this passage because we read it at Christmas time because it prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. But I want to keep reading. We always stop. Listen to Micah chapter 5, verses 2, through the beginning of verse 5. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. By the way, let me ask you a quick question. When Jesus walked on the earth, did he rule in, in Israel? No, he was a suffering servant. He came and he died for the sins of the world. So if the prophecy said that one is going to come who's going to be ruler in Israel, and we know it's talking about Jesus, he has to one day be ruler in Israel. These things must take place. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. If you keep reading, you'll see when the Assyrian comes. We'll get to that later on in our study. I believe the Bible teaches us a little bit about the Antichrist. We're going to find out that he's going to be in the Syrian. You say, what? That's not what I've been taught all these years. Well, stick with us. I'm going to lay it out from Scripture. I can show you at least ten places where the Bible describes him as an Assyrian. The Assyrian who's going to come. But we can't get ahead of ourselves because you'll get too confused. Let me give you one more passage. Micah chapter 4. You're in Micah 5. Back up to chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 7. And it shall come to pass in the latter days. 
that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. That's the temple mount, by the way. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from where? Jerusalem. He shall be judged between many peoples, and he shall decide for strong nations far and away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, small g, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord. I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Folks, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of all the prophecies that are so literal about this time when Jesus comes to rule and reign. So what role do you have in the opening of the scroll and opening of the seals? Pray for it. Pray for it daily, believing that it will come. Pray for God to raise up in our country leaders that will be focused pro-Israel because they're God's people. Oh yeah, they don't know Him yet. They don't believe in Him yet. They're being regathered and they think that their might and whatever is going to take care of them. But the Bible says at a certain time when all the nations come against them, He's going to do something that makes them all go, guess what? Jesus is God, and they're going to believe, and they're going to worship him from that point on forever and ever. And what are we to do? We're to be saying, Lord Jesus, you said you would come. Don't get caught up in trying to predict the wind. He didn't tell us to try to predict the wind. He said to be watching and waiting and praying for it. Too many people are all freaked out because, well, the blood moons have come and gone. Well, guess what? Is, what did God do with the blood moons and the solar eclipses? Something. But if you go any further, you're sinning because you don't know. He didn't say. Plus, half of those couldn't even be seen from Israel. Why would he use signs for Israel when they can't be seen from Israel? Oh, possibly because not all Israel's in Jerusalem yet. He might be trying to get their attention. I don't know. Avoid the prediction of when it's going to happen. People doing math with seven-year cycles and Shemitah cycles and all this kind of stuff... Jesus didn't tell us to try to predict when, did he? What did he tell us to do? To pray for it to come. And the Bible says that on that day that Jesus grabs that scroll, all the prayers of the saints that have been praying for that moment are going to be brought before him. I'm going to say, Lord, this is the day we've been waiting for. This is the day that we're waiting for. Now, you probably think that Next time we get together, we're going to get into chapter 6 and opening the first seal. I'm going to give you a little commercial. Remember, we're studying this book chronologically. Something has to happen first before the first seal can be opened. Nope, not the rapture. Rapture's already happened at this point. We've already had the rapture prior to chapter 4. Something has to happen. Nope. I'll give you a help. Nope, two witnesses are going to come later. 
Read chapter 7 and chapter 14. The beginning of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 14. Because that's where we're going to go next. The 144,000 witnesses are important to what's going to happen next. And I'll show you why biblically their sealing has to happen before the first seal is open. We'll get into that the next time we come together. But for now, yes, ma'am. Okay. So I have a question. Yes. So you talked about the rumblings and the lightning. Coming from the throne. throne mm-hmm. Now, when Satan was in heaven. He, he still is. Well, he goes back. He gets to go back and forth. At, 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 the, at a certain point in the tribulation period, he'll be removed from the heaven, never to be able to back in the presence of God. He's definitely, he's accusing the brethren day and night still. You're still, uh, you're, you're, her question is, does that mean if Satan's up there that heaven's not peaceful? No, the, when he was here, because oh, he's still there. God to cast him out in the third of the angels. So, I mean, there must have been some, you know, political. <laughs> um, as you're going to see in Revelation, there's going to be wars going on in heaven through the tribulation period. So all the battles are still going to go on in the spiritual realm. They've been going on right now. We just... We've had this picture of heaven being this place of beauty and peace. It's not, the, heaven is the, let me just say this to you quickly. I don't want to get too far. The Bible describes there are three heavens. The first heaven is where the birds fly. The Jews understood that there was a heaven beyond that where the stars were and the moons and everything. They called that the second heaven. They didn't have spacemen at the time, so they didn't think they could get there. That's the second heaven. They knew beyond that was what the third heaven was. And they knew that's where in their minds where God was. So when we hear the word heaven, we've got to keep in mind, is the Bible talking about first heaven, second heaven, third heaven? Paul said, I know a man who was taken into the third heaven, paradise, presence of God. That heaven, the third heaven, is where God exists. It won't be totally beautiful and peaceful until Satan is finally dealt with. Now, does that mean those who have died and gone to heaven and gone into the presence of God are... Miserable? No, they're wonderful. Satan's under control. He's allowed to come and make visits. He has to check in at certain times, as the Bible said, when the angels appeared before God and Satan came with him. There's times he has to check in. He's on a leash. He's not free to do whatever he wants. <laughs> He's not even going to pass probation. So, folks, let me just say this to you as we close. A lot of stuff we've believed over the years is the stuff we've heard. Please Stick with it. If you can't make it, listen online. They'll be on the, on the website within 24 hours. Stay with us. Don't run ahead. Our brains are going to want to, but what about this and what about that? Lord willing, we'll get there. And if we don't get there, I don't think any of us have a problem with that either, do we? <laughs> Thanks for coming. We'll see you in two weeks.